Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to talk about a common phrase that's used in the religious world today. The phrase is that a church is spirit-filled, that, 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 that churches are advertising themselves as being spirit-filled. We want to look at that tonight and ask if that is appropriate terminology according to what the Bible says. So I hope you'll be back for that. There are a lot of procedures in place in our legal system. Maybe you've had opportunities to witness those firsthand. Maybe you've just seen them on TV or watched them in movies or read books about them. It's fascinating to many people the procedures that are in place in our legal systems. And countless numbers of books have been sold and countless numbers of uh, movies and television shows have been created around these procedures in legal systems. They're fascinating. Why are these procedures in place? These procedures are in place to protect the rights of the individual, aren't they? If the individual who is on trial has committed a crime, we want a legal system that punishes that individual. But on the other hand, if the individual is innocent, we want a legal system, we want procedures in place to protect the innocent so that they're not punished. That's why we have these procedures in place. There was similar protection in place in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, just having the word of one witness was never enough to convict someone of a crime. The word of just one witness wasn't enough, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Today, we would call that a he says, she says type of scenario. Whose word do you take when you just got one witness? One witness says he did it. The guy says, no, I didn't do it. Who's right? There's no way to know. In fact, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, was unable to determine who was right and who was wrong just based on the witness of one individual. I'm thinking about the instance that was famous in 1 Kings chapter 3. In 1 Kings chapter 3, you may want to turn to your Bible if you can't read along there on the screen. The print I know is a little bit small. In 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning verse 16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king and the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. The other says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. It was a she said, she said type of scenario. Solomon didn't know who's right. There's no way to know when there's just one witness. Now Solomon came up with a plan. Go on reading verse 24. Solomon came up with a plan. The king said, bring me a sword. So they brought the sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was the living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him... 
Let him be neither, neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. There, were going to, there was going to be no way that Solomon could make a decision just based upon one person's witness. He needed more than that. And that was the rule that God established for people in the Old Testament to ensure fairness. God had established a rule that two or three witnesses would be required to commit someone, uh, convict someone of a crime. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 2, Deuteronomy 17, verse 2, If there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing His covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if indeed it is true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Children of Israel were going into the promised land, a land that was known for its idolatry. And God said, if somebody turns back from following me and goes and serves idols, that person needs to be put to death. But you can't do it if you just have one person who witnesses it. You've got to have two or three witnesses to ensure that you're not punishing the innocent. One witness, just as a he, shed, he said, he said kind of scenario, you've got to have two or three witnesses to establish truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. You've got to have two or three witnesses in the Old Testament, under the law of Moses. And finally, Numbers 35, verse 30. Numbers 35, verse 30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. If you're going to die, if you're guilty, you deserve to die. But we've got to establish that based upon two or three witnesses. That principle was a guiding principle throughout the Old Testament. You remember when Jesus was put on trial, they had to find witnesses. They couldn't just put him to death. They had to have witnesses. And they had to have two witnesses that agreed. You remember that? And they sought to find false witnesses. And even the false witnesses, their witness didn't agree. Finally, they found two that agreed. And he was crucified. You have to have two or three witnesses under the Mosaic system. In the New Testament passage that Joseph just read for us in, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, this principle is brought to light again. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We just read about that. 
Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common theme, thing, and un- insulted the Spirit of grace? In the Old Testament, when you turned your back on God, you died on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The Hebrew writer is referring that, referencing that and talking about us. If we are to turn our back on God, we'll suffer a worse punishment. But punishment has to come based upon witnesses. And I want to tell you in this passage, we have three witnesses against us. If we ever turn our back against God, and if we sin willfully, there are three witnesses presented here that will convict us of the crime that we've committed against God. The first of those witnesses, when we sin willfully, is mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 10, and that is the Son of God. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Of how much worse punishment, you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? When we sin willfully... Our first witness to take the stand against us is Jesus himself. Jesus came into this world to seek and save the lost. He did this by teaching truth. And this truth is what sets us free from sin. In John 8, verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus taught us the truth that would make us free. But when he did that, It brought responsibility to us. The truth will make us free, but we have to accept it and apply it to our lives. And when we see the truth, and we know what the truth is, and we turn our back against it and sin willfully, you know what Jesus said? He said the words that He spoke will judge us. In John 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus is going to be our witness against us. If we turn our back against the truth that he brought into the world to set us free, and we say, I see that, and I know what that says for me to do, but I'm going to be like the Israelites, and I'm just going to turn from that, Jesus will be a witness against us. He's the witness of the truth. He told Pilate in John John 18, verse 37. In John 18, verse 37, Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. When we turn our back against the truth, we're turning our back against Jesus, and he will be a witness against us. And he's a faithful and true witness. We read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus is a faithful witness. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 10 says that when we sin against God, we trample the Son of God underfoot. That imagery is one of total disdain and humiliation, an act that shows no respect. That's what a 
victorious king would do over his conquest. He would trample them underfoot, show no regard for them, disrespect them, dishonor them. When we turn our back against Jesus and we sin willfully, we're doing just the same. We're trampling him underfoot. In Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Do you realize that when you sin willfully? When you know what you're supposed to do, but you just don't do it? You're trampling Jesus underfoot. You're putting Him to an open shame. You're dishonoring and disrespecting Him. And let me tell you, He will be a witness against you. What a scary thought. Hebrews 10 goes on and tells us another witness, as we need two or three witnesses in order to be put to death under Moses' rule and Moses' covenant. Two or three witnesses will be against us if we sin willfully, the second of those being the blood of the covenant. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 20, uh, down to the, the end of the passage there, verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? When we sin willfully, we count the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified a common thing. You know, covenants are a binding agreement between two parties, aren't they? Signing a covenant or a contract brings serious uh, implications, and there are serious consequences to that. For example, maybe you want to buy a house. You go and look at the house, you like it, you think it's the great one house for you, it's the one you want, you can afford it, it's in the right location, and so you want the house, what do you do? You sign a contract, don't you? Now you haven't paid any money for the house yet, but you, by signing the contract it is just as if you've bought that house, isn't it? You are obligated to buy that house when you sign the contract or you enter the covenant to purchase the house. And maybe you want to change your mind and you want to back out. Well, they'll bring that document out and say, is that your signature? You signed, you're buying this house. You're obligated at that point. And maybe if there was earnest money put up, you're going to lose that earnest money if you change your mind. You back out because the covenant is binding. And so it is with us. When we became Christians, we entered a covenant. We made a contract with God. And we are obligated to keep that contract. In Hebrews chapter 9, in Hebrews 9, beginning of verse 15. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it is, has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, 
He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood both on the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In the Old Testament, you will remember when Moses got the law from God, he read it to the people, and the people said, we will do that, sign us up. God is going to bless us if we'll obey Him. Here's what He expects from us, we'll do it. We want the blessings, we want to be God's people we will follow the law that God has given. And so they entered this covenant. And what did Moses do? He sprinkled the blood on the book and on the people. In other words, you're signing up for this contract. You're signing up for this covenant. You're in a covenant relationship with God. And as a result, they were bound to keep that covenant. They didn't keep that covenant, but they should have because they had entered that arrangement with God. And so it is with us. When we became Christians, we got the blood of the covenant on us. We just read about and remembered Christ's blood. He said when He instituted the, the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant. We're in this covenant relationship with God. We made an agreement. I will serve you. I will follow you. I'll do what you want me to do. And when we sin willfully... We're turning our back against that covenant. We're not living up to our part of the agreement. And we are breaching the contract. And just like we do in a business agreement, when someone didn't hold up to their end of the agreement, we'd bring out the contract. And we say, here's what you agreed to do. You have to do this. So will this contract be brought against us. When Jacob is leaving Laban and taking his wife and his children away, Laban comes to him and wants to make a covenant with him. Notice what he says about that covenant in Genesis chapter 31, verse 44. In Genesis 31, verse 44, Laban says, Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Laban wanted there to be peace and an agreement between Jacob and him. He wanted a covenant that would be a witness of that. And the covenant that we've entered in with God when we became Christians is a witness against us when we turn our back against it and we don't do what we said we would do when we became Christians. And notice what it says. It says that we've counted the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified a common thing. It is the blood of Jesus. It is the blood of Jesus that makes it possible for us to be in this covenant with God. And when we turn our back and we sin willfully, we count that as a common thing. We show no regard for this sacrifice. When we sin willfully, the Son of God, the blood of the covenant, will be witnesses against us. And finally, this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that the Spirit of grace will be a witness against us. When we sin willfully, we count the blood of the covenant an un, un, a common thing, and we insult the Spirit of grace. 
Jesus sent the Spirit into the world to guide His disciples into all truth, John 16, verse 13. The Spirit delivered the truth and confirmed that those who were teaching it were teaching it accurately. In Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed by us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The Spirit confirmed the truth. That yes, this is what you need to be believing. This is what you need to be practicing. The Spirit confirmed that. And when we sin willfully, when we turn our back against what the Spirit revealed, the Spirit is going to be a witness against us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When we aren't living like we should, our conscience, our spirit compares what the Holy Spirit revealed. And we have a witness against us that we're not living like we should. We have a witness against us. And we insult the Spirit of grace when we sin. It's an insult to the Spirit. Have you ever thought about it that way? The Spirit revealed God's will for us to us so that we could have it. And yet when we turn our back against it, it is an insult. You ever try to give someone advice and they turn against your advice? Maybe as a young child. And you told that child, you said, you need to do this. And they thumbed their nose at it and did the opposite of that. That was an insult, wasn't it? Can you imagine what it is for the Spirit when the Spirit tells us not just advice, but this is what you must do? And we say, no, I know better. I got a better idea. We're insulting the Spirit of grace when we sin willfully and we turn against Him. We've insulted the Spirit of grace. It took two or three witnesses in the Old Testament to convict someone of a crime. And when we sin willfully, I want to tell you there are three witnesses against us. The Son of God, the blood of the covenant, and the Spirit of grace. But there's more. The passage goes on. It says that when we sin willfully, we're guilty and we're, we're subject to worse punishment. In the Old Testament, those who turned their back and rejected Moses' law, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we're subject to sore or worse punishment as a result of the testimony of the three witnesses that we have against us when we sin. Well, how could it be worse? How could it be worse than getting stoned to death? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 tells us, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. A terrifying punishment awaits. If we turn our back against God and we sin willfully, if we say, yes, I know what God wants me to do, but I just don't want to do that. If we sin willfully, a terrible punishment awaits us. And remember, there are enough witnesses to convict us. We won't get out of that punishment. We will not escape if we do not submit to God's will.
How are you living this morning? Are you completely dedicated to God? Are you fully submitted to Him and His will? Or are you allowing these things to hang around in your life that you know aren't right, but you'll get to them someday? Yes, I know that I'm not right in this area. Yes, I know there are corrections I need to make over here. Maybe someday, not right now. There are witnesses against you. And there is a sore punishment awaiting than what the people in the Old Testament undertook when they sinned. Won't you make it right? Won't you correct it right now? Won't you repent? And if we can help, will you let us know while we stand and sing?